Well, Dan and the praise team, thank you so much for leading us in praise this morning. Thank you so much for presenting that song to us, uh, ministering to our hearts, and teaching us uh, that our hearts are to rest in Christ as we strive outwardly. We are straining, laboring, pursuing Christ externally, but our hearts are not fueled by guilt or shame, anxiety. It's not fueled by fear of man. But it's fueled by resting in Christ. Trusting in the work that Christ has done once for all on the cross is what motivates us to do all that we do as followers of Christ. I was shocked to find out that Isaac Watts and uh, I think David Ward wrote uh, one chorus, wrote, penned these words um, hundreds of years ago. And um, it was from reformpraise.org. I've been so blessed by that website. There's so many songs there. And we hope to um, sing these Christ-centered, gospel-centered, grace-centered songs in our church so that it would, God would hammer these truths into our hearts and that grace would break through. Uh, grace would break through and transform the inner man so that there would be true uh, worship of Christ in our hearts. It wouldn't be outward works fueled by pride or self-reliance or moralism or legalism, but it would be outward striving fueled by God's grace, fueled by His love for us. Uh, I had lunch with uh, Pastor John Kim of Lighthouse Bible Church this week, and he sends you his greetings. I had a wonderful time of ministry with them a little, maybe two months ago, and um, it's uh, such good news coming from that church. Uh, Pastor John and his wife and the leaders and the members are like cornerstone discovering the gospel, are are being are being exposed to uh, the truth of God's free grace, how we're not to leave it at the point of our salvation and live rest of our Christian lives as Arminians. No, we carry our Reformed theology all the way through. And just talking to him over Korean barbecue was so precious. Um, you know, we're in the midst of the smoke. Our eyes are... Uh, our eyes are cheery, not because of the smoke, but because of um, the, the wonder and amazement of the gospel. And Pastor John Kim said the same thing Pastor John Coet said all these years, 20 plus years, serving preaching, serving Christ, studying the Bible, and how could we have missed it? And um, it's just it's just amazing grace that God has uh, allowed us to see uh, this, these wonderful truths, and we're experiencing liberty um, as well, and he recounted how his parenting has changed so much, uh, telling me about how he's training and disciplining his children, and it's transformed how he approaches his children. And that seems to be a common running theme for many of the parents. Well, I just want to report good news to you uh, from abroad, from not abroad, two, two hours down, but still. Um, well, happy Mother's Day. Uh, before I, or before I get to that, I have a. We just came back from a wonderful men's retreat. Uh, Huey was right. Great, great, amazing time of the, in the Word and repenting and singing songs and fellowship and shooting each other with paintballs and uh, carrying a, a log, log race that I, will, that I hope to forget but probably will never forget. It was, I felt so undignified in so many ways. And... You know, they have to take pictures and even a video of that. It'll help me in my sanctification towards humility, so that's a good thing, I guess. 
and uh, balloon games and so forth. So wonderful and great food. Wow. God's been blessing us with food and a uh, wonderful time there. And so uh, it's the women's turn. May 29th to 31st, the men of our church are sending the women and the husbands and the fathers are volunteering to go to the front line and take care of wage war and take care of uh, our children. And so I've got a seven, four, three, and a one-year-old at home. And if I can do this, you better do it. <laughs> if I hear you didn't send your, you know, wife to women's church, I'm going to knock on your door and leave my kids at the front door and just leave. It's not right. But if I'm going to be out there in the front line, you have to join me. So May 29th to the 31st, and we have our own in-house speakers, um, Mr. Lane Jung, Jane Park, this is, um, Mina, and Serene will be preaching their four sessions. They're going to have Q&A, and they're going to have uh, group time, discussion, praise, and prayer. I don't think you'll be doing paintball, but maybe uh, you'll be painting each other's nails. <laughs> I mean, the extent of the painting going on at the women's retreat. I don't think they'd be carrying any logs, but they might be carrying, I don't know, what do you women carry? I don't know. <laughs> carrying flowers, uh, one another. So, different activities with the same heart. So, uh, and we're not sending you guys to like some uh, campground up in the mountains. We're sending you guys to a nice, posh hotel. Well, not posh, like mid-level posh hotel. <laughs> Lower level uh, posh hotel uh, in Orange County. And I, we, we know you have a wonderful time. So um, oh, oh. sign up online or talk to one of your leaders to sign up. Well, we need to get going. Happy Mother's Day. Um, you know, I think Huey is right. I mean, this is a day that it should be a Mother's Day every month. Um, you know, I, I, I'm appreciating now mom's love for children is so much greater than dad's love for children. We have, like, I'll die for my kids, but I don't know if I'll, like, you know, at night we're about to go to sleep and children's a little worried that it's a little cold and the kids have kicked off their blankets. And I'm like, it's okay. <laughs> it's not that cold. And they have those onesies on and they're all good. And if you get up, I have to get up too because I can't, like, lay there and let my wife. So, but, you know, my wife, even though it's, like, lay, we're tired, she gets up, check on the kids. And that's when I realized. Wow, she loves our kids <laughs> so much more than me. And so on this uh, Mother's Day, I'm sure it's not my wife, it's my, you know, all moms uh, love their children. So I'll trust that you'll take time out this week or this weekend to uh, honor, remember, and praise um, uh, your moms, to thank God for them, and to really um, uh, bless them. Uh, by your personal expression of your uh, gratitude toward them. Uh, so in light of that, and historically, we've gone back to, on Mother's Day, you know, I should be giving a women's sermon, a sermon for women or moms. So historically, we've always gone to like Proverbs 31 or Titus 2. We've done that so often. I had resol- resolved earlier, earlier this year, I'm not going to go to Proverbs 31 or Titus 2 on Mother's Day. But Explicitly because of the men's retreat, and, and especially because I believe this would be an encouragement to the women of our church, we're going to go to Titus 2, and we're going to do something a little different. We're going to kind of, you know, kind of a healthy pace 
uh, kind of kind of skim through, run through verses 1 through 10. We need to do that to set the context, and then we'll kind of go through a slower pace through verses 11 through 14. So I want you to understand that, that we're skimming through 1 through 10, but we're going to slow down for verses 11 through 14, lest you worry, you know, we're, we're just kind of breezing by, and uh, are we going to even study this text? So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Titus chapter 2, uh, Paul's instructions to uh, Titus as he leads the church. He, he separates the church to four categories, actually six categories, older men, older women, younger men, younger women, um, slaves, and Christian leaders. And he gives them, um, he says, speak to them the things that accord with sound doctrine. He's not telling Titus to teach him script theology, but teach them right life, the lifestyle, the attitudes, the behavior, the conduct that is consistent with sound theology. And then starting in verse 3, he addresses older women, four marks of older women. Verse 3, they must be priestly in their behavior. They must be godly in their behavior. Secondly, they must not be slanderers. The Greek word here is diabolos. 34 times it's used in the Bible to describe Satan. They must not be Satan-like in their speech. Their speech must be consistent with their conduct. Godly in conduct. Godly in speech. Verse 3. Thirdly, the third mark of an old godly older woman is that she's not a slave to wine. She's not uh, addicted or in bondage to wine. And so the principle is... uh, Paul is talking about wine, but we can apply it to any foreign substance. Anything in this world, uh, godly older women are not to be addicted to, unduly influenced by, unduly tied to uh, these substances. It could be alcohol, food, exercise, media, people, money, material things. Anything in this world... A godly woman is free from such entanglements, free to serve Christ. The fourth mark is that they are not um, self-centered in terms of their time and energy. They devote themselves to teaching what is good and training younger women. And um, this is so important here. We've talked about this so many t- you know, in our, in our church history how godly women are a treasure to the church. They are precious in the sight of God, and they're precious to, to the leaders and to the whole church. Because the older women are the examples that the church follows, especially younger women. So if you're an older woman, you, have, you can't opt out. There is no choice or option. You are an example. You set the standard. You set the pace by your life, by your conduct, by your speech, by your decisions. You are a pacer in the life of the church. And you are doubly important because you are the arms, the feet, the mouthpiece of the pastors, elders, and spiritual leaders of the local church. Because the pastors cannot disciple younger women. We are not, that is not our responsibility. Paul didn't tell Titus, hey, go meet with these younger women. Right? Go disciple them, mentor them, instruct them, teach them, counsel them. No, as, as, as male leaders, we are to go through the older women, go through our wives to train and instruct younger women. That is why the older women being godly and making themselves available and investing their hearts, their lives, their time, their energy to younger women is so important. Uh, the, the reality is, 
is the elders past our hands are tied. It would not be right for us, for too many reasons to mention today, for us to be uh, counseling, intimately discipling uh, younger women, especially single women. Our hands are tied. It is up to the older women, um, compelled by, constrained by uh, Christ's love for you and your love for Christ, Christ and His church, to open up your life, your home, your kitchen, your, your, your leisure times, younger women, and to pour out to them. Uh, it is your uh, God-given stewardship, this privilege to train younger women, engage them in the training process to raise them up to be godly, to Christ-like. Those are the four marks of old, godly older women, and then Paul talk, goes to seven marks of a Titus to younger women. And so you see the difference between men and women. The younger man, he gives us one command, right? Younger, younger man, be sensible, right? Don't be dumb. You know, be wise. Be so fraud. Be prudent. Be temperate. The younger women, he gives seven. <laughs> so women are definitely more complex. There's more involved in, in teaching, training, discipling younger women. And he, here's a list of seven. They are to love one's own husband. Right, and verse 4. And this is the responsibility of the older women. Older women of Corinth, so you need to go to these young wives and help them love their husbands. Why? Because it's difficult. It's so hard. It's, you know, they're like, you know, when they're dating, it's easy. When they're engaged, it's easy. After a year of marriage, right, you, you know, you've been through it, older women. You discover how hard it is to love these young, selfish, foolish men. And so you need to help younger women to biblically, wisely, humbly, uh, carefully love their husbands, uh, to really care for them, to really minister to them. Uh, without your help, uh, they're, the, they're very vulnerable, they're at a great disadvantage, and that is a call upon older women to teach younger women to do, th- to do this. Secondly, to love one's own children, verse 4. Train them to love one's own children. So the priority of a younger woman is God first, and then their husbands, they're married, and then their children. Interesting to note that God never commands fathers to love their children. God commands actually no one else to love their children except the moms. It is direct responsibility of moms to love their children. So it is a, a privilege it is a joy, it's a joyful stewardship, and it is not something to neglect or outsource to anyone or any group. Pastor MacArthur said, quote, to neglect one's duty before God as a parent is to forfeit the blessing inherent in the task, and those who do so take on a burden God never intended. One sure way to fill your life with misery is to abdicate the responsibility God has given you as a parent and steward of your child he has graciously placed into your hands. So here is, uh, I believe, a great-grandfather, a, a grandfather, three generations, pastor of one church for over 40 years, a, a godly man who has studied the Bible uh, through and through, and he says, with that wisdom, with that knowledge of Scripture, and knowledge of life, knowledge of family, this is a responsibility, a joyful stewardship given to moms that is not to be neglected. The third mark is sensible. 
That Greek word again, sophron. Having a sound or healthy mind. Having the ability, not just the knowledge, not just the wisdom or insight, but having the ability to curb desires and impulses so as to produce a measured and orderly life. So it is truly wisdom. Wisdom is the, the, the ability to apply truth. The ability, the power to live out what you believe, your convictions. Um, the fourth mark is purity. Hagnos, which means morally pure, virtuous, sexually faithful to your own husband. Fifthly, worker, working at home. Uh, verse 5, one word in the Greek, oikorgos. Oikos means home, ergon, to work. She's to be a worker at home. Proverbs 31 woman embodies this, how her primary work, her primary stewardship, her sphere of influence through which she engaged the world, her community, her neighbors, was through her husband and her children ministering as, at home. That's where she poured her life. She got up early, went to bed at night late for the sake of the home. This is the fifth mark. She is to be a homekeeper. Uh, that's the sphere of her responsibility. That's her place of employment. That's where her heart is. That's where she pours out her life. Proverbs 14.1 A wise woman builds her home, but a foolish woman with her own hands tears it down. Just two more. Verse 5, she used to be kind. Kind. And we, uh, a few years ago, did a whole study how women, they're not kind. Right? Women can be very vicious, very mean. Not overtly, but very under the radar, in the, in a, in the cruelest way. Very cruel, very hurtful. Um, there's a, several books written about that. A movie came out, Mean Girls, and how women can... <laughs> okay, guys, I've never seen the movie, so no rumors. I've never seen it, but that's what I heard. It's about <laughs> girls being mean, and... and that's true, right? I mean... Uh, I'm really not scared of guys, but I can be scared of women, right? Because they'll be smiling and, um, you know, hurting you in so many ways uh, when you're not looking. Um, godly women are not to be like that. They're to be gentle, um, merciful, thoughtful, forgiving, uh, tender, abounding in good works, always looking out for the good of others, not for themselves. And then finally, submissive to their own husbands. Right? And the key uh, qualified, qualified there is own husbands. It's not submissive to all husbands. It's your own husband. And it's repeat, repeated throughout New Testament. Ephesians 5.22, Ephesians 5.33, Colossians 3.18. Wives, submit to your own husbands as a student to the Lord. First Peter 3.1. Even if they're not Christians, you are to submit to your own husbands. How much more if, you, if God has blessed you with a God-fearing husband, should you line up under him? A hypotasso, stand up under and be submitted to him as he submits to Christ. All right. So, so many applications. I'll pause here for a brief moment. I want to ask the older women, are you modeling right life? All right. Do you realize that I can't be an example to the women of Cornerstone? And definitely Bob can't be an example to the women of Cornerstone. Women, if you're looking up to Bob as an example, wrong example, right? 
The pastors can't. It is impossible for us. We can model right doctrine, but no way right life. So who are they looking to? They're looking to the older women, the moms, right? the single women of our church, and they're looking to you, and they're watching you with eagle eyes. And so, uh, if you love Christ and love Christ's church, uh, the, one of the best ways you can do that is, is pursue being a godly example. Right. And in all these ways that Paul delineated here for us, right. you realize you're an example. Uh, and secondly, I know, we know you're busy. We know you have so many things on your plate. You know, someone said, world is run by tired men. No, no, no. The world is run by tired women. Right? Uh, men aren't as tired as women. Uh, we know you're busy. You have many things on your plate. You're caring for your husband and your children and, and running a household is running a, a, a corporation, literally. The management of a household. I mean, single guy, you don't appreciate what it takes to run a single household from finances to laundry to maintenance to cleaning. I mean, just to, to, you have to be a judge, a lawyer with the children. You have to be an advocate. You have to be all these things every single day. And yet, God says God's going to give you strength to also uh, call you to uh, minister to the government of, of the church. So are you uh, making yourself available? Are you hiding behind your children? Hiding behind soccer leagues and ballet classes and little league? And you make no time, no provision for women to get to know you and to grow and learn and, be, and follow your example. We humbly encourage you. Uh, consider what God says to you and that it's your joyful privilege to pass on godliness to another generation of believers here at our church. Are you teaching, training, investing uh, your life, hard time to younger women? Are you imploring them to love their husbands? Right? Are you imploring them to do that? Are you encouraging them to love their own children? Are you encouraging them to be sensible, pure, workers at home? kind and submissive to their own husbands, those who are single, are you encouraging these single gals to love not their husbands, but love Christ, not, not their own children, but love the church and younger Christians and orphans and widows, and not submit to their own husbands, they're not married, but are you encouraging them to submit to their fathers, right? submit to their elders, submit to their spiritual leaders. So that's what I've done in our past studies of uh, uh, Titus chapter 2. Uh, I last taught this in 2007. And Dan, Pastor Dan was at our church maybe a few months. And he asked me, James, are you going to preach verses 11 through 14? And uh, you know, my heart response, I don't really, we talked about this this week. I don't really remember what I said, but my heart response was, why bother? I, I don't want to waste a Sunday. I don't want to waste a sermon. Like 11, you know, Dan, this is we're Cornerstone Bible Church. We know the gospel. We know God's grace. Why spend the whole sermon preaching on the gospel of Christ? Uh, that's not the meat of a preaching. The meat is application, application, application. Right? Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. That is the heart of what preaching is all about. And so that's verses 1 through 10. 11 through 14 
it's kind of review, it's kind of dry. How do you really preach that? So I stopped at verse 10. And in all my times of preaching Titus 2, I've never preached verses 11 through 14. Because from my heart, gospel is, I presumed upon it. In my own heart and in your heart, I presumed upon this truth. And uh, I thought it was one of many truths. And for me, the gospel was the condiment. It was um, dessert. It was extra. So you guys have, you know, you guys have told me, but James, I've heard you talk about the gospel. You would talk about looking at Christ ten times, looking at our sins only once. I, I did say those things, but you, do you remember? I said it at the very end, right? I just kind of gave you a scoop of ice cream, put it at the end, or I give you a little relish on top or mustard or ketchup. It was condiment for me. For me, the meat was imperatives, obedience, and burdening you and burdening me with all these lists of what not to do and what to do, and I would just sprinkle on the gospel for better effect. What has changed, what we're discovering is, the gospel is not one of many truths. 1 Corinthians 15.3 is the first important truth. Right? That's what Paul said. What is of most importance I passed on to you? That Christ died for our sins. It is the central truth. It is the meat. The applications, the imperatives, that's the, those are the condiments. That's the appetizer, the dessert. But what's, what is to fuel our motivation? What is to drive, compel us? What, is, what empowers us to do all these things, give us hope to do all these things? It's the gospel of Christ. It's the grace of God. That is why... For those who heard Titus 2 for the first time, they're all excited. Right? Yes, I want to be an example. I'm going to do this, even if it kills me. I'm going to pour myself out to younger men and younger women. I'm going to be all these things that Paul talks about. I'm going to be pure. I'm going to be holy, priest-like. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to slander. I'm not going to walk worthy. I'm going to be devoted to my husband. And that's where it gets difficult, right? I'm going to love my children, and it gets hard. And then the second time you hear it, it becomes a burden. Okay, I'm going to try a little harder. First time, maybe I didn't give my full effort. That's why I failed. This time, I'm serious. And the third or fourth time you hear it, you're just kind of jaded. Your heart's kind of calloused. These imperatives don't impact you as they first did because... You just see your failures all over the place. Be pure. Be kind. Be devoted to my home. Love my husband and children. For the men as well. So in the church, those who are hearing for the first time are all excited again. For the first time, but those who are here repeatedly are burdened increasingly. And the Christian life becomes dry and difficult over time. Looking back, I realize, we realize it's a big error on our part. Big mistake, because the grace of God is the power for the Christian life. The power, the power for the Christian life. Right? I mean, you can, I guess, survive on condiments. Maybe you wouldn't die eating relish all your life. Right? You wouldn't die with ketchup and mustard. But 
you know, you'd, you'd be very weak. Right? And so all you were doing was just licking your hot dog. Right? And then one day you realize, wait a minute. The protein is not in the relish. It's not in the mustard. It's not in the kids. The protein is in the hot dog. It's in the bun. We've, we've been licking the hot dog right, for all these years. And that's why we're so weak and languishing. The power for the Christian life is in God's grace. That's why 2 Timothy 2.1 Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Right? Passive tense verb. It's not be strong, but it's receive strength from the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 6, same thing, the armor of God. It's passive tense as well. Be strengthened by the Lord. I don't know why we didn't see this. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things in Him who strengthens me. I can do all these things solely by the strength that I receive from Christ. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Him we proclaim. So Paul is preaching, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all the wisdom that he has to present everyone perfect in Christ. For this he toils, he struggles with what? With all his energy that works powerfully within me. So Paul is doing the toiling, the preaching, the teaching, but the strength for all of that comes from Christ, not within himself. First Peter 4, 10, 11. Each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another. If you speak, speak with the oracles of God. Serve, serve by the strength that God supplies. We are to do all that we do for Christ. By His strength, not our own. That's the resting we're talking about. It's not like couch potato Christianity. Oh, God's grace, I'm going to take a nap. You know? God's grace. I'm going to sit down now. I can rest. No, like, I mean, I, I, it's spiritual rest. We're not restless. We're not anxious. We're not driven by guilt and shame that prompts us to, to, to obey. No, we are working, we're laboring, we're toiling. But our hearts, there's peace, there's joy, there's contentment, there's rest because our hope is not in our work. We're, we're not fearing burning out. We're not fearing our strength is going to give out. No, there's confidence because our trust is in what Christ has already done. And He said at the end, to tell us, Ty, it is finished. He has done it. He has rescued us. Right? He has accomplished salvation on our behalf. And for anyone who trusts in Him, we have been united with Him in His death. And that the power of His resurrection belongs to us. So, with that mindset, let's look at verses 11 through 14. That first word, for, is an important conjunction. Right? Because, since, therefore. This section, with that word, ties the previous imperatives, previous commands, to verses 11 through 14. Because grace of God has appeared. Right? The English equivalent is epiphany. 
it's been revealed, it's been shown. The Gospel of John talks about this, how the law came through Moses. But Christ brought something else. He brought grace and truth. In fact, John 1.16 says, grace upon grace. It's the Greek way of saying infinite grace. Right? With Christ, he brought with him infinite grace. And it appeared to all mankind. Right? To all men, grace appeared by Christ. But to us who believe, right? it appeared to all men. But to us who believe, it did more than just appear. This grace of God is in us. It's in our hearts. It's dwelling within us. And it is effectual. It is powerful. It is active. It is dynamic. This grace of God, this infinite grace is alive within us. And it is doing this thing. It is training us. And the Greek word is paideon. Uh, it's instructing. It's mentoring. It's discipling. You know, it's like having your own personal trainer. Right? You go to a 24-hour fitness and you're lifting like five pounds for a year and there's not, you're just getting bigger, right? In the wrong way, in the wrong places. You're not doing it right. So you hire a trainer who will come alongside you, give you a diet plan, right? He invests in you, right? He gives time, he gives all his knowledge, all his insights, all his uh, training, and then he teaches you how to do the exercises right. You have a personal trainer next to you helping you exercise. There will be much better results. That's what the grace of God does for us. Pideon, it trains us. It equips us. It disciples us. It instructs us. And it's a present participle. A quick grammar. Eris participle is past tense, once for all. Uh, A perfect uh, participle is once in the past with residual results. This is present participle. The grace of God that is within us is continually training us. It's not just past grace. It's not just present grace. But it's grace that is in the past, grace that is in the future, present, and grace that is to come. Every moment, God's grace is actively working in us. Helping us, causing us to grow in Christ. And what is it doing? Uh, it has a uh, twofold purpose. Grace has a twofold work in our lives, negative and positive. The negative side is that the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Christ's own power through the work of His indwelling Holy Spirit, not only warns us about ungodliness and worldly passions, but enables us, empowers us to renounce them, to disavow, to reject, disown, to refuse ungodliness and worldly passions. And this is middle voice. This is wonderful. So it's not the pastors like twisting your arm. Don't sin. It's not your family pressuring you, constraining you, uh, nagging you. 
to renounce worldly passions. It's not your friends. It's not your discipler. It's not your small, it's not your flock leader. Right? Just clamoring on you to do what is right. No, it's middle voice. Because grace is so beautiful, it's so wonderful, it's so lovely. You do it to yourself. You don't want, you renounce these things. You disavow them. You turn away. This is the power of grace that is completely foreign to non-Christians. To those who are immersed in religion, they have, Second Timothy, a form of godliness, but they deny its power. They are foreigners to this power, this internal power that compels us from our hearts. The Pharisees had no clue of this power. For them, it was all external. Inwardly, they are filthy, unclean, full of full of sin and dead men's bones. That is rotting. Right. No, for Christians, we know this grace. Right. This is what empowers us. And so I, I think there's a, this misunderstanding of grace does so much harm to us. Um, you know, uh, there's a misunderstanding of grace that is common among non-believers and that is infiltrated the church and it has caused us to think wrongly about grace um, true story a man called his pastor in a panic late at night and he said I need to meet with you tomorrow morning early in the morning the pastor said um, well can I can you give me a clue as to what we're going to talk about because I can pray for you and pray for our time together and he said no I can't share with you anything please meet me uh, early tomorrow, pastor met with him, and the young man said, I was away on a business trip, met up with an old female friend. We, we talked late into the night. We had some alcohol, had a lot of laughs, and then we slept together. He is married, has small children, and he asked the pastor, what should I do? The pastor paused in his heart, wondering what to say to this young man. He said to him, first of all, you need to repent of your sin. Go to God and ask for forgiveness and pardon. You need to confess your sin to this young woman that you sinned against. Tell her it's a sin and tell her it will never happen again. Thirdly, you need to confess this sin to your wife. Ask her for her forgiveness. And fourthly, you need to get tested for STDs until the, until the tests come back. Don't even think about intimacy with your wife. The young man listened to each of these quest statements without expression or comment. When the pastor was done, the young man pushed his breakfast plate away from him, leaned back in his seat, and he said, I came for grace, not for discipline. You disappoint me, Pastor. You say you believe in grace, but you judge people according to their works, just like the rest of the world. The pastor was cut to the heart. He was so hurt. Not so much in the young man's response, but in what have I been teaching about grace? that would cause this member of my church to believe that grace 
somehow as a license to sin. That grace covers up sin and allows us to, to uh, sin without, without consequences, without confession, without repentance, without seeking forgiveness. I think that's a concern for some of the members of our, our church. You know, we're preaching so much about grace, so much about the gospel and free grace. If we remove fear and guilt and shame, it's going to end up like uh, our Pebbles ministry, right? These young kids, they don't have fear. They don't have shame, have no guilt. So for an hour and a half, first hour, second hour, they're running wild in Pebbles ministry, and so if we preach grace to Cornerstone, Cornerstone is going to turn into like Pebbles Ministry. They'll be rioting in the streets or at least around the snap table, right? Everybody's going to go crazy wild because they're not restrained by duty, by guilt, by shame, by responsibility. Um, we cannot, if you mean abuse grace, in the sense of overusing it, that is not a possibility. You can misunderstand grace, and you can twist it with our hearts, with our legalism, with our sinfulness, twist it and make it into something else. But we cannot, if it's, if it's biblical grace, overuse God's grace. We cannot overbelieve, believe too much, receive too much. Love too much God's grace, God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's gospel, or Jesus Christ. John Bunyan, who was in prison for the gospel for 14 years, while he was in prison, religious opponents came to him, argued with him, urged him not to assure his Christian friends of God's unswerving love. They told John Bunyan, if you keep assuring the people of God's love, they will do whatever they want. Bunyan replied, if I assure God's people of his unswerving love for them, they will do whatever God wants. Why? Think about it. Because God's grace is given to us to renounce ungodliness. That's the work of God's grace in our hearts. And that's effectual. So if we believe in that grace, if we trust in that grace, if we rely on that grace, then they will renounce ungodliness. They will grow in holiness. When When they sin, the response won't be, well, I'm sinning. I know God's grace. So, I don't want to abuse God's grace. I'm going to give, me, give myself some guilt. I'm going to shame myself. I'm going to receive shame. I'm going to receive fear. If I go this way, something bad is going to happen to me. God's going to judge me. God's going to be angry. God's going to pour out His wrath on me. So, out of fear, I'm going to balance my Christian life. Right? That is the common understanding of not abusing grace. When someone believes in grace, and, the, and we, I sin every day, and we sin, we understand the reason I'm sinning is because I don't believe in God's grace. The root cause of my sin is unbelief. 
The sin behind the sin. It's not behavior modification. It's not controlling my behavior and my speech. It's my, my unruly heart. The reason I am sinning is because I don't believe in the grace of God. The costly grace. Christ coming and living a perfect life, dying on the cross, a sacrifice for my sin, and His unserving love for me. If I truly believed that, I would see sin for what it is. I, why would I want this? It is totally, completely undesirable. It is unsatisfying because God's love through His Son is so much better. Grace will train us beneath the surface in our hearts to renounce ungodliness. Spurgeon said this, while I regard God, while I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew Him to be my Father, it was then that I mourned I could ever have kicked against Him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I beat upon my breast that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my own good. But that is how grace works in us, brothers and sisters. That is what drives this, this kills guilt in our conscience. Freeing us from moralism and legalism and self-reliance and teaching us, training us, mentoring us, equipping us to renounce ungodliness in the heart. So on a side note, and this is how it works. So in a legalistic religious setting, unbelief thrives. You can't see someone who, who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't receive the gospel in a legalistic setting. They, they flourish. Because it's all about external righteousness. So the Pharisees were the kindest people. They were pure. They were workers at home. <laughs> their wives were, right? Their wives loved their husbands, loved their children. Right? In every way, they were blameless, above reproach. Because in a legalistic context, they are thriving. But when it's Gospel context. It is grace. It is faith. And we tell people, do what's in your heart. That is when um, unbelief is exposed. Unbelief comes out. And uh, our true state of our hearts or our true state of our maturity is exposed. The context of Grace. Because there are so fewer places to hide. You can't hide behind ministry. You can't hide behind good works. Uh, you can't hide behind your merit badges and say, you know, I'm godly because look at all the things that I'm doing. Right. Because it's not about these things. It's about your faith. So the grace of God, this powerful grace that, that breaks through and ravishes us, trains us to renounce ungodliness. Desire for sinful things. It also trains us to renounce sinful desires for permissible things. Right? So there's a desire for sinful things, ungodliness. And there is a desire in all of us, a sinful desire for good things. The grace of God teaches us, trains us to renounce these things. This is where sin is so insidious. 
Because our hearts are such idol-making machines. We're so twisted. We take what is good and we worship it. We idolize it. We love it more than loving Christ. And so we break the first commandment. And these are good things, permissible things. It could be your spouse. You trust your spouse. You depend. Pleasing your spouse is more important than pleasing God. It's a permissible good thing to love your husband, love your wife. But in our hearts, if if it's sinful, that's idolatry. A career, man, if you've got a job in this economy, that's a great thing, right? You pursue it, but in the pursuit of career, uh, just like the priests of Baal, you, you make sacrifices, right? They sacrifice children, so in the pursuit of, yeah, you know people like this at your work, they sacrifice their dignity, their integrity, they sacrifice relationships, they sacrifice spouse, they sacrifice, literally sacrifice children. Right? Literally. Right? In, in various ways, sacrifice children on the pursuit of their career, achieving this career. And it's accepted, accepted in our culture, so it's not confronted. Um, I mean, so, sports. Right? It gives illustration of the men's retreat. I couldn't think, think of one for the women, so I apologize. But, you know, watching these playoffs for sport, uh, basketball, they're all... They're good at sports because they've sacrificed their lives because they idolize sports. You know, Phil Jackson, his wife asked him, told him, it's either the Lakers or, or me, our marriage. And Phil Jackson chose Lakers. Got on his bike and came to Staples Center. So he's a great coach because he loves sports more than anything else. I mean... All these things can be children, children's education, retirement. They're all permissible. Many are good. But there's desire, sinful desire for these good things. That's idolatry. And the grace of God trains us in this area as well to renounce worldly passion. Epithemia for cosmos. Lust for this world the positive side, the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passion that renounces the first active verb. Secondly, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. See, legalism is focused on what we are, are not to do. What not to do. Grace is focused on what we are to do. You know, General Patton said, the goal of, the, of war is not to die for your country but to have the other guy die for his country, right? <laughs> Good point, right? The other guy should die for his country. Grace is not just for us to die, renounce, but it's for us to live for Christ. To live for Christ in this present age. How? Sofran, that word wise. Self-controlled, sober, prudent, temperate. To live in that way in this age, the grace of God helps us to live upright with integrity and to live godly lives in this present age. So we are not to be separatists. We're not to live monkish lives. We are to live in this world. But the grace of God helps us here. So we don't have to run and call Bob 1130 at night and ask questions about like life issues. 
Uh, it'd be good to you. Maybe you love it during the afternoon, but you don't have to call them like 11 at night. You don't have to call your shepherd and like, oh, what should I do about my taxes? What should I do about this? Grace of God is there as your personal trainer to help you. We've had uh, some, a few young husbands come to me recently, and uh, I'm good. I'm great. I'm so happy the housing prices have come down. And they're telling me, asking me, they're thinking about buying their first house, first condo. And uh, I tell them, yeah, grace of God will help you, right? Legalism says, uh, you know, live in a tent with a sleeping bag and uh, eat dried fruit. And God will love you more. Grace of God says, God, God will train you and teach you and help you to live in this present world. Right? Where there are real estate agents, real estate brokers, there are taxes, there are association fees, there are negotiations, and there are hopes and desires, and uh, school districts, and neighborhood safety, all these issues. And the grace of God will help you to be wise, not be engrossed by these things, to be upright, to deal with these people in the world with integrity, and also in the main, all through it, maintain godliness in this world. And so it's not just for buying a home, but for your career, for your marriage, for your parenting, for your finances, for vacations. Grace of God will help you to live in this world, not like a monk, not like a separatist, but be immersed in the world, but live in a way that's worthy of Christ. But look at verse 13. All the while, waiting for our blessed hope. Grace will do so much more. It will help you to live wisely in this present age, but it will also help you, train you, instruct you, to help you to see this house is going to burn. Right? This is all going to burn. It will help you to see it's temporary. It's not my life's goal. Retirement is not everything. My children, I don't worship my children. My spouse is a gift. I thank God, but... My wife didn't die for me. My husband didn't die for me. They're not my savior. They're not my redeemer. Christ is my hope. So we live in this world. We're involved in this world. But grace mentors us all the while we're waiting for our blessed hope, our ultimate reality, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Here it is. The gospel again. The gospel again. Teaches us. He is the one who is ultimate. He's the ultimate reality. It's the grace of God. What does it do? Renounce ungodliness. Renounce a desire for sinful, a sinful desire for things helps us to live, right, with wisdom, with uprightness, and with godly lives. But ultimately, the grace of God compels our hearts towards Christ, moves us toward loving Jesus, seeing how beautiful He is, how immeasurably more valuable, more, more attractive, more delightful He is than anything else in this present age how do we receive this grace how do we activate this grace in my life in your life how do we receive the strength it's 
by faith alone. Trust. Trust in the Bible. Take it at its face value. Believe it. And you're saying, oh, but James, I'm struggling with this. I'm struggling. Pray the prayer of the Father who had a sick son to Christ. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. There are areas in my life, my heart, I don't believe. I doubt. I'm enslaved to self-reliance, to moralism, legalism. Jesus, help me. Go to Christ with your idols. Jesus, these idols are too strong. Will you break them from me? Will you sever the cord? Would, would you break off the chains? Would you set me free? Would you give me faith to receive this grace by faith and to continue in it? And um, it is our resolution. We'll go back. I want to go back to Second Timothy next week. But it's our resolution as a church, as your pastors, your leaders, to help you in that pursuit. I'm going to do my best to stop feeding you mustard and ketchup and relish. And I do my best to give you sirloin steak. Right? Give you, do my best to preach the gospel. That's what Paul said, right? Acts 20, 24. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That is, that is commission given to me, to all the elders, the pastors, spiritual leaders, and to all Christians. We're here to testify to the grace of God. May God give us His grace infinitely each of us as we trust Him. Let's pray. Lord, why, why were we resisting Your grace? Why were we afraid of casting ourselves, jumping with both feet at the ocean of Your grace? We ask indeed for Your forgiveness. We pray that the cross of Christ be clear in our hearts and our sight and our vision and we would receive this grace in full measure that it would train us to renounce ungodliness to renounce passion for this world well, help us to live sober, upright, godly lives and most importantly it will help us to wait for you and to long to be with you. Compel us to love you with all our hearts, soul, and mind. Lord, we pray that you are the author of salvation. You're the author of all of it. Justification, sanctification, glorification it began with you. We pray that your grace will break through our thick hearts, our hardened, calloused, oh, hearts that are prone to self-reliance. Lord, you will break through and you'll ravish us not with strength or power or might. You'll ravish us with your love, mercy, kindness, with your forgiveness, with your beauty. Thank you and in your son's name we pray. Amen.